everyone, and thanks for listening. This is episode seven of The Minimal Pair. I'm Jean Dempsey, and this is Stephanie Axe. Hello. Hi, Stephanie. How's it going? I am doing great. How about you, Jean? Pretty good. How are you holding up as the semester winds down? You know, it has been rough. Um, I spent about two hours last night putting together, getting myself organized with um, student work and mm, trying to but get But don't want her to fool you, folks. She was also watching The Amazing Race. I did. I did while I was It's just organizing. It's not like I was grading yet, but um, it took a long time to get myself organized for all four classes. I bet. This is, um, this is a stressful time of the semester as we try to get organized and as our students hopefully try to get organized. It seems like everyone's rushing around to try and get stuff finished. And one thing that makes it really difficult uh, is when students miss class because that makes more work for you and for the student. Definitely true. Um, I know that, you know, as especially spring semesters, weather starts to get nicer, students come a little bit less, they think it's okay to, you know, take off a day or two here and there because we're almost done. But what they don't realize is that it's just adding on additional work, not just for us, but also for them that they're going to have to make up or miss the points. And they're putting themselves in a really precarious position after the drop date, which is pretty late in the semester for for some schools, Mm -hmm. um, to suddenly take it so lightly in between that drop date and the end of the semester is not not a wise move. Right, right. So how many absences did you have today? Did you, are you willing to? Let's see, in my, um, in one class I had two absent out of 11 um, and one late, but I should add that we were writing an in-class essay that they will then uh. use to determine if, if they pass the class or not that essay will be judged by a committee of readers. So it's not a good day to miss class. No, no, not at all. Well, I in my listening and note-taking class today, I did have a third of the class gone. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so I know that they're ready to, you know, have their summer break and everything, but, you know, they did miss some key things. We did some practicing for the final. Um, I'm breaking the final down. I mentioned in a previous podcast how we're doing a live journal for the final. So we're going to watch a video and then they will write a journal in class. And so they'll have to write an introduction. They'll have to write a summary and then an opinion section. And then also um, they'll have to work on some vocabulary that I give them from the video. And so today we were practicing the introduction in class. And it was sad to see that some of the students who may benefit from that practice they missed out. Yeah, it seems to always be the ones who would benefit the most, mm-hmm. I feel like. Yeah, yeah, the ones that you have in mind when you're putting in together the activity. So, yeah, um, so I have noticed that people have been absent a little bit more here lately. So I think that any teacher could understand and identify with that feeling of frustration. But I think in a uh, second language classroom, it's especially important for students to be there because there's so much interaction that's going on and even if it's not a listening and speaking class there's that there's always that component um and for that for those reasons it just seems especially important that students come to class and because our classes are so small i had a class last thursday there's only four people in it two people were gone okay so i had two people gone this morning and it didn't make that big of a difference, but I had two gone last week and it was half my class. So when the right. classes are that small, that also makes a difference. It really, it, it does. And, um, you know, my class today was a pretty big class. It was about 15 students. Um, and so that's saying five students didn't show up today. 
Um, and one tried to not show up. He actually t- texted me right before class, and he's like, I'm not feeling very good. And so I texted him back, and I said, this is number five, absence number five, if you don't come today. So it's your choice. I can't tell you anything one way or the other. And he, he dragged himself to class. But Do you have a set number of absences that they're allowed before their grade is affected? Um, in that class, it's six absences. Uh, and I basically just follow the university standard on that. And, you know, I look at the situation. I don't just say, okay, well, you've missed your six classes. Sorry. But if they've been communicating with me fairly regularly or I know that they've had a, some kind of disaster or family emergency, you know, I can be lenient on it. That's fine. And especially if they work hard to make up the work that they miss. But um, in general, that's kind of my guideline, six, six classes. Yeah, I think that um, that's a reasonable number in that kind of class. In the in the class that I teach um, in the mornings, the one this morning where I had people missing class essay, it's a six-credit class. So if they miss one class session, they're missing like almost like two classes worth of information. Sure. Um, and then it also, I think, depends on when in the semester it happens. Like this is just not a good time for students to be missing class. Right. Yeah, you're right. I mean, if they can just hold on these last couple of weeks. God knows we're holding on. Oh, man, tell me about it. There have been times. I I went to class sick on Friday, and I ate a blini that a student served me. So, And we'll talk more about that later. We will. And so, you know, if I can, like, drag myself to to class and deal with it for 45, 50 minutes, then, you know, I expect the same. And so um, you mentioned something about how you'll look at why students have been gone and you'll take that into account. Mm -hmm. So where do you draw the line as far as reasons for absences? Well, you know, one would be, uh, you know, if it's if it's some kind of family emergency and they've brought some kind of proof. I never request proof, but you will have students who bring it in. They're really trying to show you they're not slackers and they're not trying to, you know, skip your class. You know, I give those people the benefit of the doubt Um, are people that I really get to know who kind of share personal things with me. Um, You know, I had somebody one semester going through something very deeply painful and personal, and she didn't have to tell me any of that. I wasn't expecting it. But the fact that she kind of told me that showed me how much this class was important to her. It just was bad timing. And so um, I do try to work with students if it's something like that. However, if it's, I've been sick six different times, you know, and you're not really entirely sure, you know, it's, then you have to kind of have some kind of consequence, I feel. Yeah, I had a student who um, went to an astounding number of funerals one semester. And the way I figured it out was that I was sharing an office with another adjunct who had this particular student in another class. And that class met on Tuesday, Thursday, and mine met on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and we discovered that he, between both of our classes, had missed something like four or five classes for funerals. I don't know if he wow. thought that like we'd take that more seriously than him saying he was sick or what, but it got to the point where um, we both kind of had to to make it make him understand how important it was that he was there. Um, and it got, yeah. got to the point where he had emailed me that he was in the hospital with a broken leg and that he wasn't <laughs> going to be able to come to class. And I wrote him back and I was really sympathetic and I'm like, wow, that's awful. And I'm really sorry for what happened. Um, unfortunately, 
you've missed so many classes that at this point, even if you have like a really legitimate reason like that, there's not a lot we can do to get you caught up. And I guess that put the fear of God in him because there he was uh, the next day with no cast and no limp and nothing whatsoever wrong with his foot. So that is amazing. I had to call him out on that. Did you get his doctor's name? Because that's pretty That's a miracle amazing. of medicine right there. Yeah, you, sh- you should have gotten that doctor's name so you could... If only some of his friends and relatives had had that doctor, they might not have been to so many funerals that semester. (laughs) Yeah, I think sometimes, you know, students know that, um, you know, there are keywords that you hear that they know that keywords are going to make somebody else kind of uncomfortable, that it's like, oh, I'm so sorry, or oh, yeah, no, don't worry about it. Um, you know, one could be funeral or dying like, or, or uh, problems in your marriage. I've had students oh. uh, open up to me about problems in their marriage. Um, and I don't know if it was because it was a male student or that I just didn't want that much information. But I just found myself feeling almost like I was being manipulated, um, that I was supposed to feel sorry for him. And it's not that I didn't, but it was it was just he was he was crossing a line with me as far as my comfort zone and far I didn't want to know about his marriage. Right. Sure. Sure. And then you've got the feminine problems too that wi- you know uh, women will be like, "Oh, they think they could just, you know, say certain keywords within that area and you're just going to be like, "Okay, that's fine. Whatever. Whatever you need to do." Um and yeah, so Yeah, I think our friend um and colleague Nancy had a great story about that last semester. She had a student who who missed her class because of cramps and Nancy basically laughed at her and said like that's not gonna work with me you think that I never had cramps right yeah yeah so I mean it's um you know you you have to kind of use common sense and and also based on the person's past performance if it's somebody who's like reliably there and then things just kind of go south I mean we've all known somebody who's who when it rains it pours and they have problem after problem after problem and they just keep getting hit and you don't want to add to that and be problem number 10 for that student I definitely get that Um, you know and so you do kind of look at your track record with that student throughout you know either that semester or if you've had them in other classes Um, but at the same time you have to use common sense and say at some point like school has to be like one of your top three priorities in life like Right. And I'll like say that I'll say that to them that I don't take it personally or um, I'm not offended if, if school isn't their priority, um, but they need to recognize that and ask themselves what their priorities are. And if, like you said, if it's something that's come up at the last minute or all of a sudden they have a lot of problems at once, you know, that's different. But for the people who come to me with stories about how they had to work late or how they have to work early, I understand and I can sympathize but then I say to them that maybe this isn't a good time for them to be trying to go to school also right I will say one thing that makes me incredibly uncomfortable is when a student says their reason for not being able to come and then they'll say is that okay or can I not come today you know they try to put it back on me um right you know and I had one student in particular who one time I had her for a couple of semesters who um, she answered to her family. She had a mother-in-law that she had to answer to. This mother-in-law drove her everywhere. This mother-in-law kind of was the head of the house. And she would say, well, my mother-in-law just called and said, I need to come home because I need to do X, Y, Z. And is that okay with you? <laughs> and I'm like, it doesn't matter if it's okay with me. You know, it's do it not anyway. my choice. Right. You know, you have to do what you have to do. And that's kind of how I always put it back on to students. Like, you know, you have to do what you have to do. 
And a lot of the students were working with their young adults. So it's their first time navigating the adult world and prioritizing. And, you know, if I'm telling them what their priorities are, then that's really not helping them anyway. So they do have to kind of decide on their own. And I get a little uncomfortable when they ask me to take that role on in their life. But And when your students do miss class, um, how do you handle the things that they've missed? Do you allow them to turn in homework that was due that day? So it depends on the level. Um, because I feel like as they get to a more advanced level, you know, they should should really kind of look more like a college student. You know, they should really embody what a college student is. And so to me, what a, co- a college student is, is somebody who takes responsibility. You know, first they, they ask before the class, what am I going to miss? How can I get you the homework that was due um, before class? Um, you know, very rarely is it something that like, oh, they got in a car accident on the way to class. I mean, that is a different story. But if they know that morning that they're not coming to my afternoon class, I expect there to be an email. And not just an email saying, can I send it to you? But just send it to me. You know, just send me your assignment. And I look more favorably upon that um, than if you say, well, do you mind if I send it to you? Or you don't mention it and then try to turn it in when you come to class in the next session. Right. I I taught a class where I made it very clear that my policy was homework was due on the day that it was due. And if a student was absent, then they had to get their homework in because either they knew they were going to be absent because of a family um, event or they were going to be out of town or whatever the reason. If they knew they were going to be absent, then they knew that they needed to plan ahead and get their homework done. And if they didn't know they were going to be absent because they got sick during the night, then they should have done their homework the night before because they thought they were going to class the next morning. So in my mind, there's no reason, unless like you (laughs) said, you know, a car accident, something like that. But my policy was if you aren't in class, your homework is due by the time that class starts. So if class starts at seven and I get the email six hours later, then I'm not okay with that because, and the whole point of this was, was I was trying to deter students from not coming to class because they hadn't finished their homework. Right. So they thought, well, it won't be late if I'm not there or I'll just use this time to do it. But no, 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 no. Not okay with that. Yeah, I feel the same way. And um, what I notice with advanced students is that maybe by week three, they finally get it um, in most classes. You know, they might try to push those boundaries a couple times. And then when they realize, like, no, I'm really not going to accept it. You know, I'm sorry you did all that extra work. Um, you know, that's kind of how they put it. Oh, I did all this work and you're not even going to accept it. And I, I always offer to look at it. Yeah, give them feedback, feedback, but no grades. But I won't do points. And, um, you know, that's just something that they have to learn. And I, I feel like once they learn it, they're either going to start making better choices or, you know, maybe they're just not, that semester is just not a good semester for them to be enrolled. But not that it's my judgment call to make. But. Right. And I think, like you said, that usually in a week or two they figure it out. And if they don't, then that's sort of an opportune time for them to decide if they need to drop the class or not. Right. Right. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, they have to, um, they have to kind of figure that out on their own. And I'm not, I mean, I am a mom, but I'm not mom to them. Right. <laughs> so, so Right. What about the work that they miss during class? Um, so 
It depends on the campus. One campus, the preference um, is to say, and I never really thought of doing this until I taught there, but um, one preference is to say that they actually have to ask another student that they're, their first uh, choice shouldn't be to contact me about it, about what they missed in class. Uh, they need to talk to other classmates to get the assignment, to get notes, um, get caught up on what's going on. And I put that in that syllabus, actually. And I had an instance today um, where somebody had said to me, oh, I didn't know the first draft of our research project was due today. And I said, oh, well, um, I, I handed out a schedule two weeks ago. And he's like, well, you know I wasn't in class that day. <laughs> and I said, oh, well, I didn't get an email asking for any materials. And you know, I thought you would have talked to your classmates. I'm not going to chase you down. And he goes, well, I just thought it was implied because I told you I wasn't going to be in class, that, I, that you would send something. And I said, no, it doesn't work that way. Um, so you know, that's a hard conversation to have. But if they're not responsible for their own education, you know, I can't go out on any limbs because I can't do it alone. I can't get them a degree, you know, on my own. They have to do the work. So. Exactly. And they have to understand that if you tried to track down each student who missed your class, you would be spending all of your time running after students trying to get them the work that they missed. And right. so I'm, I'm the same way. I don't, if they email me and tell me that they're absent, then I might email them back and say something like, oh, well, you, you know, you had your journal was due. So if I don't get that by the time class is over today, then it's going to be a zero. But as far as what we do in class, um, that's their responsibility to find out. And if they, and especially because in most of my classes, we follow a pretty set pattern. Like mm -hmm. in the grammar class that I teach, every time we finish a topic, there's a quiz on it. And so they know that. And so if they come to class and say, well, I didn't know we had a quiz last week. I say, well, you should have for one thing right. and you didn't ask for another. And I'm not going to, to try and find you and make you take this quiz that's worth 10 points. Like that's not worth my time. And frankly, it's probably not going to hurt your grade that bad anyway, unless it's a, a repeated occurrence. Right. Right. Yeah. And you, you, like you said, you, you don't want to be chasing people down, spending all this time. You know, they maybe don't realize that you teach, so many Multiple different classes. classes. You may have 60, 80 students that you're working with. And so even for the emails coming in, that's a lot of students to be working with. Forget trying to say, okay, did you get this from your classmates? And, oh, do you need a copy of this assignment or whatnot? And so, um, I mean, I had a student one time. We were working on a project. And she just, like, I had assigned everybody topics and she just did the one that she wanted to do because she missed the day that I had collected their requests and then assigned what they were supposed to do. Mm -hmm. So she just did it. She never checked in with me. And like three weeks went by and she's like turning in all of these notes for this tribe and it was the wrong tribe. Somebody else had it. And I said, I'm sorry, this tribe's already been assigned to somebody else you have X tribe, why didn't you come talk to me? And she was like, well, I told you the tribe I wanted. <laughs> They're like, yeah, but you don't get to tell me the one that you want. I get to tell you. Exactly. Uh -huh. And so um, that was a lot of extra work. So she had done research on two different tribes by the time the project was completed. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, it can just save so much time just to communicate. And I think that 
um, this ties in really well to what we said last week about how we how we keep ourselves sane and knowing where to draw the line and just knowing that at some point we just have to let it go. Um, that at the end of the day, they have to take responsibility and that we can't feel bad if they missed something and, and we didn't go the extra mile to make sure that they made it up. Precisely. Okay, well, I think we all know that talking about students missing class can get us all fired up and angry. So on the lighter side, we're going to talk about some of the fun things that we do in class uh, for tonight's methodology section. So Stephanie, why don't you start us off by telling um, about some of the games that you've done. Sure. Uh, most recently, you know, I've been trying to jazz up my grammar class a little bit. And so most recently, um, what I've done is work with Mad Libs. And so in case you're not sure what Mad Libs are, um, I know that they're not known in every country, but they're really big here in the United States. And if you grew up in the United States, you tend to kind of have this affinity towards Mad Libs because a lot of children played this, this game in cars on road trips or in classrooms when they were kids. So um, Mad Libs are basically stories where different words are pulled out of the story and they're left blank. And your job is to fill in the blanks, but you don't know what the story's about. You don't know any context. And so you're told, give me an adjective, give me a noun, you know, give me a proper noun. And then you read the story by interjecting these words and it kind of comes up with this like really silly, funny story. And so, um, you know, for example, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to think of a sentence, Jean, and then I'll ask you for a word. Um, Okay. All right. Give me an adjective, Jean. Pretty. The ball is pretty. So the, the sentence that I would have had was the ball is, and then she would have had to fill in pretty. So. Okay. Does that work? Yeah. Yeah. So anyway. <laughs> Sounds like it could be a lot of fun anyway, it can with be fun. clauses. And I just got done doing adverb and adjective clauses, and I wish that I had, um, you know, that you had told me about this activity that you did. Uh, earlier in the semester so that I could have used it too. Yeah, yeah. It was um, kind of something I came up with on my own, like just randomly one day. Um, and so what I did was I showed my students what an, a Mad Lib was initially. And then I took it to kind of a different level by dividing them into groups. And so, um, you know, half of the room they were assigned writing um, adverb clauses the other half they had to write independent clauses and then I randomly joined the adverb clauses to the independent clauses to come up with you know funny sentences that you know either made no sense or were just kind of goofy you know one one that came up was um you know this girl is crazy because everybody is crazy and so it was just kind of funny how that one matched up um, so yeah, we came up with some pretty fun ones. Um, that's, you know, one game that I've played. Um, also I have used not to, uh, you know, to kind of like push out our own name here, the minimal pair, but I did come up with a minimal pair game awesome. for my pronunciation class at one point where I would have the students, I explained the concept of a minimal pair and then put them into groups and they had to write out lists of minimal pairs and I think I may have mentioned this in a previous episode um, but 
anyway, so I um, had them create the lists and then I would approve the lists or tell them maybe they need to go in a different direction. Um, so they got that feedback from me. And then what I would do is I would read their lists to the class and the, cl- the rest of the class had to try to write down what they heard. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it tested their understanding of minimal pairs, but also their listening comprehension. Exactly. And so they would, you know, write those down. And it, was, it turned into this competition of sorts, and people got really excited about it and went a little bit nuts. So um, it was fun. And then um, another – I mentioned Taboo. I won't go into that one again. That one's been, I think, talked about a couple times on here. But I play, definitely played Taboo. Um, and then as far as, like, an icebreaker – I've used the one where, you know, you assign everybody a person and you put it either on their back or on their forehead, a piece of paper with the name of that person written on their forehead or back. And then by talking to other people, they have to basically, uh, you know, try to figure out who they are. That sounds like a lot of fun. And as you describe it to me, I feel like I got an idea for a reading comprehension game. Um, at the end of a semester, after you've read maybe three or four novels, um, you could do that same game by picking people from the novels that they read. Oh, yeah. I like that. I definitely like that. We could definitely do that with, um, if we had a little extra time this semester with one of the books that we're reading, Love and Hate in Jamestown, that would be kind of fun. That would be fun because it's historical, um, and this game is traditionally played with historical people. Exactly. Exactly. So how do you like to make things light in your classroom? Well, it's refreshing to hear you talk about um, playing games in the adult classroom because I haven't really done much of that. But when I taught children, I did use games. Um, And so I taught elementary school students in France. um, And so when we were learning vocabulary, we would play games like bingo or um, I made up this game where students were in two lines and the front two people in the two lines had to look at a card that I held up for them and whoever said the word first uh, went to the end of the line and the other person had to sit down and so it went forward like this so that each round one team lost a person and whichever team lost the most people by the time it was over they lost the game so they really liked that because little kids are competitive (laughs) um we also did Simon Says um a lot in the in the French class or in the English classroom in France, um, and actually this semester we're reading a book where they referred to the game Simon Says. It's a book that takes place um, in World War II, and the men were at basic training, and they described how their sergeant used Simon Says to help them learn how to march. Um, and how to follow the different commands. And, and my students Aww. didn't get it because they didn't know what Simon Says was. So we played a round of Simon Says in the classroom. And it wasn't really for learning anything grammatical or um, any vocabulary. It was more just to put the book in context. Um, or to show them who's boss, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I haven't used games a lot. but that So that's kind of the limit of what I've done. But I do feel inspired to, to use more games in, in the adult classroom. Um, One thing that I do enjoy incorporating into my lessons is music. Um, And especially in my grammar class this semester, I've tried to have a lot of music. So 
when we did parts of speech, I played different schoolhouse rocks videos. Um, and they really enjoyed that. And I remember when we did the chapter on conjunctions, I played that video for them again several times. And they were singing it before class on the day of the test because oh they knew I was going to ask them what a conjunction is. And so I heard them singing conjunction, junction, what's my function? And they remembered what conjunctions do because of the rhyme. Really? I am so jealous because after you mentioned that in a previous podcast I tried it when I taught conjunctions and my students were very much like what am I looking at oh my students loved it but I think you have to have a sense of humor about it Uh, it just depends on the class I guess you can get you can get classes that don't don't mesh well and um maybe just don't enjoy that kind of thing as much but I think the same could be said for games so it's just a matter of trying it out um I've also used there these uh, compilations of songs on YouTube. So if you Google either conditionals or modals in songs, you can find these four to five minute compilations of songs that have either condition or conditionals or modals. Um, so I used those for those lessons. I love that. It was a lot of fun. They We started out um, the class just by listening to the music. And then afterwards, I asked them, well, what conditionals did you hear? And so what did each one do? And think back to the song. And in the context of the song, what did that conditional mean? And so it was kind of like I was trying to do the grammar by discovery kind of um, approach that I had learned about at TESOL. Um, So that's what I was going for. Um, I've also come up with a lesson once before that used the song If I Were a Carpenter Mm -hmm. by Johnny Cash. And I used that for conditionals. And students had to... Um, after they listened to the song and answered different questions about conditionals, then they had to come up with their own sentences about, or no, I think what I had them do was I came, they had to come up with their own verses to add to the song. And so, um, if you're not familiar with the song, they had to come up with their own occupations that are considered taboo. So if I were a, this, would you love me anyway? And, um, so that was fun. Um, we used the Azar book in, uh, in my grammar class. And on the Azar website, which I've included in the show notes, if you want to check it out, there are a lot of song lessons. Um, so, for example, for count and non-count nouns, they, they use my favorite things from The Sound of Music. Nice. And for conditionals, um, If I Had a Hammer or Octopus's Garden. Um, so I feel like there are a lot of ways to incorporate music into vocabulary or sorry, into grammar lessons to make it more fun. And speaking of vocabulary, I had a little slip of the tongue. Um, I think songs could really be used in vocabulary lessons as well. Um, one idea that I had, um, that I, I think that I, I probably had to do this in a French class one time. Um, but basically we had a um, page of song lyrics and then we had to listen to the song. And there were holes throughout the lyrics that we had to fill in by listening. Nice. So it tested vocabulary and listening comprehension and I think that, that I, that's not something I've done in my own classroom, but I think that maybe I could in the future. I like it. I like it. I would use that. Absolutely. So anything else that you've done, Stephanie, that kind of lightens up the class at all? Well, um, definitely some role playing or dramatizations um, in the beginning academic English class that I've taught. Uh, you know, we read three to four fiction books through the semester, throughout the semester. And so we're dealing with a lot of different characters and 
one of the types of essays that we write is a point of view essay and so to kind of prepare students for that uh, because you know no matter how many times I've taught the point of view essay you always have like one to five students who don't get that you're writing it pretending you're somebody else that you're you know they're saying oh well Joe still likes to do this you know it's they don't take on the persona as their own right that's a hard hard concept for them to grasp and so one thing I have done is to try to get them you know in that that frame of mind is to assign them each characters and then maybe put them into groups where they have to interact pretending that they're that character they have to you know, call the other characters by the character name and respond to their character's name and talk, you know, I may give them like a topic that they have to discuss, you know, in terms of, you know, how would your characters act if this happened or how would you react as, you know, this character. And so, um, you know, it's been effective. It helps students really kind of grasp the idea that you're pretending and, you know, trying to, to look through somebody else's lens when you're approaching the world. Yeah, I like that idea. I've also taught that class and students did have a difficult time um, with the point of view. And I remember that some of them, um, because they had an option, they could choose to do a famous person um, or they could choose to do an inanimate object. And that makes me think of um, a drama assignment that I had in middle school where um, we were assigned groups of three and we had to come up with three objects that went well together. And there had to be some sort of conflict and some sort of re- resolution. And I don't remember all the details because, like I said, this was when I was in middle school. But I remember that my group picked an iron, an ironing board, and a shirt. Okay. And uh, I think the iron burned the shirt or something. And so we had to kind of ha- make up a dialogue about it um, fr- from the point of view of our objects that we were supposed to be embodying. Um, And I think that in the academic English class that you're talking about, it could be a fun thing to do for like a live journal. I know you you do the live journals in your um, note-taking class. And in that academic English class that that we've both taught before, students have to do journals where they um, reflect on, they usually copy a quote from the book and then reflect on it. And, And that could be anything like making different kinds of connections to saying what they would do in that character's position. So I think that um, it could be fun to do a live journal where students have to be certain characters and um, halfway through a book have to explain why they've done something. And so they don't know how the book ends yet. So they're kind of having to make it up. And yet they're using their prior knowledge of that character and what's happened so far. So it could be a sort of um, a fun activity that lightens their homework load because we all know that um, they have a they have a lot to do. Um, and it, and it could just make the classroom a little bit more fun. Sure. Yeah. I like that. I like that idea a lot. And, um, even I think for a higher level class, that could be kind of a way to just kind of break things up a little bit. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think I was thinking of this class because we read fiction, but I think even in the higher level classes, like you said, where we read nonfiction, they could just as easily do the same sort of activity. Right. Right. Yeah. I like it. I like it. Well, I do also use role play um, in my pronunciation and in my listening and note-taking class. You know, one of the complaints that I'll hear from students is that, you know, they have trouble on the phone. A lot of times they prefer not to even call me because they don't know 
if they're going to be understood or if they're going to understand everything I say. So they prefer to send a text so they can, you know, ask a friend to check it over for them before they send it or, you know. Take 20 minutes to write it. (laughs) Exactly. And I can tell you, I've been there myself with my French. So Same here. I get it. Um, And so one thing that I will do is kind of um, put them back to back, students back to back, and pretend that they're on the phone so they're not looking at each other. And they do have to kind of, you know, stretch their ears a little bit to hear what, what the other person is saying. So I'll put two chairs back to back and have two students sit there and I'll give them a topic. Um, I might say, okay, you're a doctor and you're calling the doctor, telling them that you have some kind of illness and, you know, go. And so then they go through the conversation with each other um, in that way. And so you can use it with a lot of different topics. It's good for pronunciation. It's good for listening. Um, and it just kind of gives them a safe place to kind of practice that that listening when they're not able to read lips or get context by body language or looking around at the situation. Yeah, I think that's um, that's a really important thing to realize that sometimes our students, um, I mean, or, or to draw a line between whether they're learning English um, just to kind of get along in their daily lives or whether they're learning it for academic purposes or, you know, whatever their reason is for learning English. Um, And we focus so much on the academics that sometimes we lose sight of the day-to-day. And I think uh, I did a similar lesson in a pronunciation class where students role-played calling their landlord uh, and taking care of certain issues that they were having they had to and it was kind of semi-scripted to give them a starting point but then the landlord was given um, options for how they could respond so that then they had to kind of react it wasn't 100% scripted gotcha yeah and giving them that guidance can be helpful because sometimes they're just like I don't know what to say I've never been in this situation before and so yeah if you at least give them some guidance you can get them, get them on their way with it. Yeah. All right, great. Well, I'm glad that we had a chance to talk about some lighter things because it feels like everything's been so crazy and busy. And with our last segment, you know, we were talking about some heavier things. So, so I'm glad we talked about this. Well, and maybe if we made our classes more fun, students wouldn't miss them so often. No, they, would know what's <laughs> they wouldn't want to take that chance. So this week, we're going to have another segment of Culturally Speaking, just to take a little break from adjunct antics. We don't want you to think that we don't do anything but complain. (laughs) Um, So tonight, we're going to talk about um, how the different perspectives of our students can collide in the classroom and what the result is. So what prompted this discussion this evening was a lesson that I had earlier, um, in case you couldn't have guessed from our previous segment, um, I'm teaching modal verbs. <laughs> so so we had a discussion where students had to agree or disagree with different statements, and then they were supposed to sort of elaborate on it. So some, some examples of the statements were um, people should get married before they turn 25, or people should not marry outside of their religion. And this prompted a lot of interesting reactions because um, I think depending on what culture the student was from, that sort of informed how they reacted. So in some cultures, people get married much younger than they do in the United States. 
And so, and I know I've had students ask me before, like, oh, well, are you married? Oh, why not? <laughs> and um, they don't understand why I'm an, an adult woman who's not married yet. And that's just their cultural perspective because they get married at a younger age. But then I had other students who seemed flabbergasted that you would, you know, get married that early or that you would marry someone outside of your religion. Um, and I had one student say that she wouldn't marry someone outside of her religion. And the class kind of turned on her like she was a racist. And I, that was the term that they used because I remembered having to explain that this was not a question of race, <laughs> first of all. And that Second of all, she was entitled to her opinion and that she wasn't being critical um, and that just because she chooses not to marry someone outside of her religion doesn't mean that she doesn't respect other religions. Um, so it, it was an interesting conversation and that's kind of what gave us the idea for tonight's segment. It is interesting when you start to hear these little side conversations go on with students. I mean, you know, it's not something that I always like present to students to talk about, but it comes up because of whatever you're discussing in class. And it's interesting to see kind of how they handle it with each other. And I try not to get too involved. I try not to moderate unless it really needs moderation or people are obviously getting offended because I want them to kind of be able to talk with each other and understand where the other one's coming from. And so I always think it's fascinating when these, uh, these issues come up. And had them come up on Friday, I had a student giving a presentation on how to make blini. Which, by the way, I didn't know blini is plural. Oh. If it's singular, if it's just one of the little pan Russian pancakes, it's blin, B-L-I-N. Okay. So I, that's one of my takeaways from her presentation. So no blinis, huh? So, yeah, you can't say blinis, which I am very guilty of saying. Um, but she said, yeah, no blinis, blini. Okay. That's what it is. Lesson so, learned. So, yeah, so she was making blini for us, um, and... After she had made her blinis, she's passing them out and had toppings to put on them and everything. And one of the students declined and said, oh, no, I don't eat egg. Um, it's against my religion. And this prompted this really interesting conversation within the class about, well, what do you eat or what, don't, what else don't you eat? And so students started asking each other, well, is there anything you don't eat? And so, you know, somebody was like, well, I don't eat meat. And somebody else was saying, oh, well, I don't eat cow. And... So the conversation was going on and on, and it was really interesting. It reminded me of, um, oh, what was the name of that movie? The, about the, is it The Greek Wedding? or I can't remember the name of it. I'm so sorry. I think it's about, it was about a Greek wedding. My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Yes, My Big Fat Greek <laughs> Wedding. Thank you. <laughs> so um, anyway, you know, in there, and the mom is, like, cooking, and he's like, oh, I'm a vegetarian. She's like, okay, I'll make you lamb or whatever. And so it was kind of like that, where there were some students who were so flabbergasted that people didn't eat meat or animal products, and they were like, no, we, we eat meat, we eat, you know, lamb, we eat this, we eat that, we smoke, we drink, you know, so they were very like, we can't believe that anyone will cut anything off, and then you had people on the other end who were like, well, no, I don't eat any meat, and, you know, these are my beliefs, um, but it remained very respectful, and people were, you know, asking questions about, well, why? Where does that come from in your religion? And what's the purpose behind it? And I thought that it was a really good moment for students to, you know, over some blini, <laughs> kick back and learn a little bit about each other. And so that was, that was a really um, interesting day for me. Yeah, I actually had a similar experience. Um, at the end of our 
semester in the academic English classes, we usually have a party because those classes are very intense. And so after a semester of hard work, we kind of like to celebrate. And um, in the past, I've, I've found that students are always very conscientious about what they bring and about sharing what ingredients are in it um, because they they usually know that people have dietary restrictions for one reason or another. Um, and, and one semester, I had students who brought in, I had two Indian students who brought in Indian food and they left the onions to the side for anyone who wanted them. And I had never, you know, I know all about eating pork or not eating pork or eating cow or not eating cow or, you know, I know about veganism and most of them were well-known dietary restrictions, but I'd never heard of a culture not eating onions. Um, and it turns out that in their religion, they don't eat onions or garlic. And I can't remember, it was a specific sect of Hinduism, I think, um, that they couldn't eat onions because they want their breath to be fresh when they worship their God. It was really interesting. Um, but the fact that they were the ones who couldn't eat the onions, but they brought them for everyone else, which I thought was really, yeah. So that was really, really a nice moment. Um, another time that, that this has kind of come up in the classroom is in a class that I teach where the theme is diversity. And so it's interesting. I always love this theme. We, we change themes every semester. Um, and I love it when we do diversity because what better class to have a diversity theme than a class that's as diverse as ours. So um, every semester they have to do a research project and they, they have to pick a topic that relates to the theme. So we give them some suggestions. And I remember this semester when they when I was giving them suggestions, one of the, the topics that was come up with, um, not by me, but by the all of the teachers in this uh, who teach this class, um, one of the topics was gay marriage. And my students were um, really shocked. And some of them were upset. And um, it was hard for me to not react strongly to that because I know enough about their, their personal backgrounds to know who among them have been persecuted in their past. And so it was hard for me to see someone who I knew was treated like a second-class citizen, not even a citizen at all, in fact, in her country where she was born. And then to hear her say negative things about gay marriage, um, I kind of had to bite my tongue. <laughs> um, but I also have to respect that, that that's her her opinion that's informed by her culture. Right. But I'm glad that you, you know, had the discussion because that is a big discussion right now in American politics. And, it, you know, unfortunately, it's part of politics. It shouldn't be, but it is. Um, and it's something that, um, you know, is, is something that they'll hear on TV or hear other people talk about. And so it's a good idea for them to have a little bit of understanding about what the issues are. Right. And so without without saying what my opinion was or lecturing this student on what I thought, I just shared a story um, of when I worked in an elementary school and there was um, a gay couple that adopted several children from the same family from an orphanage in Brazil. And so I shared that story because one of the other topic suggestions in addition to gay marriage was adoption by gay parents. Um, and, and again, it was a very strong negative reaction. And so I just share this opinion without kind of saying either way what I thought, but just how these, these kids had been given a whole new life. They had gone from living in an orphanage to living in a house in the suburbs 
and having bikes and cousins and, you know, presents. And, um, I kind of saw the perspective change just a little bit after I shared that story. That's what I find, you know, when I run into some sort of racism or any kind of ism is if you sit down and talk to the person and maybe share a story about somebody you know who fits their the stereotype that they're kind of against or whatever you know sometimes they can learn a little bit from it or see that oh you know what we're all people and we all have you know similar types of desires and needs and wants and maybe they're not so different and so it's nice when you can have that as kind of a platform in your classroom. Yeah, and, and interestingly enough, the student who reacted most memorably for me, and whether it was because she was in the front row or because I knew enough about her background that I was able to see how it was kind of hypocritical for her to react this way, um, she ended up choosing discrimination for her topic, and she talked about discrimination in the workplace specifically. And initially she focused on women Um, but as she did more research, she kind of broadened her topic a little bit and looked at discrimination against different races and, um, against disabled people and against sexual orientation and religion. And so it was really interesting, um, that one of the things that she included was sexual orientation. And I'm interested to see what she says when she gives her presentation, because I I would like to see how her perspective has changed if it has. Sure. And I want to be clear when I just said um, that it shouldn't be a political issue, that gay rights shouldn't. I didn't mean it in terms of, like, it didn't deserve the airplay. I meant it more of, like, things should be resolved because it's 2014. So I I hope I didn't offend anybody with that statement. Um, I wanted to be clear about it that, um, you know, I just feel like everybody should have equality. Yeah, and I'm glad that that – I agree with you, and I'm glad that it's a topic for that reason – And I'm glad that even though this particular student who I was talking about didn't choose that topic, someone else did, and she will be presenting on it in a week and a half. And I look forward to her presentation and how the class can grow from it. Great, great. And, you know, these types of topics do come up sometimes within some of our own lecture topics or uh, within units in the classroom. And, you know, one that I've talked about before was during um, African American History Month. I do try to kind of present some information to students about our history as a nation and um, how African Americans have been treated throughout history because, you know, like I said earlier, they're, they're living here in the United States. It's good for them to be aware of some of the things that have happened and, and, you know, just to kind of help them even in their own little cultural interactions with people to kind of understand the backgrounds. And so, um, one thing that I did was have students go up to the board before we start. It was kind of like a, a pre-lesson. So they had to kind of um, write on the board everything that they knew about African-American history. And, you know, some of them were misinformed and some of them were right on, on the nose with it. Um, but it was good to just kind of get all of that out there and that gave me an idea of things that maybe we could talk about in class. Has that ever happened with any other topics? I feel like, um, especially in the note-taking class that we both teach, there are a lot of topics that um, I think could be interesting from different cultural perspectives. And one that comes to mind for me is the chapter on the multiple intelligences because I've taught elementary school students in France and I've taught elementary school students here in the U.S. And it's interesting to see um, how 
the learning styles are not the learning styles are different, but the teaching styles are different and um, what is considered a better way to learn, Um, you know, very strict and by the book or creative and having more fun. Um, And so that's one topic that comes to mind that could be very different depending on a student's own background. Absolutely. Um, Most recently for me, um, and I've taught this this section several times um, on art, and then one of the areas we discover is uh, graffiti art, which I think I put a tweet out there about graffiti art um, last week, I think, or the week before. Um, but my students, in talking about graffiti, a lot of people had very strong opinions about whether or not graffiti was art or, you know, if it was just straight up vandalism. And some students, you know, they were very um, strict about, no, it's vandalism 100% of the time. It doesn't matter if it's pretty, it's not art. You, you can't be both art and vandalism, right? And so um, the discussion went on, you know, several days we kind of had a lot of like little mini discussions about it. And then at one point a student asked me, what do you think, Stephanie? And Uh-oh. I try not to interject my personal opinion and things too often, but um, you know, what I did was I showed, this student was in particular um, pro all graffiti is vandalism. And so I put up a picture of the Berlin Wall. And I said, you know, I think anything that gives people a voice when they don't have a voice, I think that's beautiful. And to me, that's art. Um, it may not be to you, and that's okay. But I do think that graffiti can be art. Um, and <laughs> she said, no, I'm going to tell you what you think. I mean, she literally said, I'm going to tell you what you think, um, that the the government should give you a space for art and that's the only place where art should be created. And so it was very, it was wildly different. You know, here I've lived in Paris and I have maybe a little bit different view of art than some people do, but um, you know, I was on one end of the spectrum and she was on the other end and I didn't want to be contentious or start a big argument, but um, you know, it was, it was just interesting to see that, you know, her viewpoint was that there is a place and a time for art and that's where it is. And so a lot of students disagreed with that, though, and they spoke up and said, no, you know, she, she wants the art to happen whenever it's making a statement, or this person is creating art because they don't have a voice, and, you know, that's beautiful. It doesn't have to be pretty. It could be what they're saying is beautiful. Yeah, I, I agree. I've taught that lesson before, and I've also shown the picture of the Berlin Wall, which I'm sure was um, an idea that I got from you originally. Um, and another picture that I showed was the I love you wall in Paris. Um, and we kind of talked about the difference between the two walls and how they both um, had, you know, artwork on them, but one was allowed and one wasn't. And so did that make one graffiti versus the other, you know, was it a question of legality? So it was an interesting conversation. And, and again, I think that their, their cultures really influenced their opinions. Yeah. Yeah, another thing we did um, with the art section was we looked at um, Diego Rivera and murals. And um, so for those of you who may not be familiar, he's a Mexican artist who's famous for his murals. And he was quite controversial um, during, you know, the time we talked about communism and cap- versus capitalism. And, you know, he had been, you know, kind of caught up in a lot of different scandals at that time. And students actually really loved that that section because they 
they said, you know, I didn't even know that there were any famous artists from Mexico, and I didn't know that, you know, something like that could be created in terms of a mural. And so um, that caused a lot of really interesting conversations, too, because Diego Rivera's murals a lot of times were about, you know, the working people mm -hmm. of Mexico. You know, he really wanted to represent them as her the heroes of his work. And so, um, you know, for them to kind of see that, you know, as a, in a cultural light, was, it was interesting, and we had a lot of great conversations. Yeah, that's, that's really great. So, um... Well, I think um, before we go, what I would like to say is that uh, we'd love some feedback. It's been a little bit, a little quiet here um, lately. So if you could like tweet us or send us an email, um, you know, reach out to us on Facebook. We'd love to hear from you. Um, on Twitter, you can find us at, at the minimal pair. And our Gmail account is theminimalpair at gmail.com. And, um, you know, if you're feeling really generous and you have an extra few minutes on your hands, if you could write a review on iTunes, we would just love you forever and give you a shout out in episode eight. Um, we'd really like to hear from you. So until next time, keep it minimal.